Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Jill Weinbanks, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. Kim will be back next week. You all know we're going on tour in May to Portland, Oregon on May 12, New York City on May 19th, and Washington, D.C. on May 21. There's still time to get tickets. Go to politicon.com tour and get your tickets before they sell out. Hurry. Okay, let's get on with the show today. We'll be discussing what's going on with the Manhattan DA's criminal investigation into Trump in connection with the Stormy Daniels hush money payments. Also, the recent news about developments in the special counsel's classified documents case. And finally, we'll be taking a look at the motivation behind Trump's decision to hold a rally in Waco, Texas this weekend. And as always, we'll be looking forward to answering your questions at the end of the show. But before we dig into this week's topic, y'all, I've got um, a question for you. You know, I'm just back from this dream vacation that we took to Sweden. I've always wanted to go to Scandinavia. We were supposed to go um, 10 days after the world shut down for COVID. So this was a little bit of delayed gratification. And, you know, I love to travel. Um, It's always fun to imagine yourself in a different place. But I'm a homebody. I'm always ready to come back home, looking forward to seeing my pets in my own house but not this time. I could have stayed in Stockholm. I really loved it. I was sort of thinking, who could I find over here that needs a a legal researcher that I could do some criminal justice reform work or teach a class for a semester? And it's really the first time that's ever happened to me. Um, Have y'all ever gone on a vacation where you just imagined yourself staying and not coming back? I don't think so. I, what about it? It, it? You know, I, I'm like you, Joyce. I love to travel. I love to see new places. But I will say I'm a homebody as well. And as much as I love to travel, I also love coming back home. What do you think it was about Sweden that was so so different and so special? Well, you know, it was cold for one thing. It was cold. We were on the water. Sweden, Stockholm is sort of an archipelago. So you're always walking and walking across bridges. People walk and ride their bikes every place. And it's super relaxed. It was just beautiful and fun. The food was was very, um, they're into, you know, like they, they know where their food comes from. You would order food in a restaurant and they would tell you what farm it came from. Everything about it was really cool. Yeah, sounds great. So I, I'm going to answer your question in, in two different ways. One, I am so curious and I love finding new places. So as much as I love some places and am sad to be leaving, and I know I'll go back like Paris, I 
could always go back to Paris. I love Paris. I love London. Um, I love India. I am always happy to come home. But I also go on vacations where everybody goes, what in the world are you doing in that place? So I go to places that nobody else in the world would want to go. Um, and North I would Korea. New, <laughs> well, I actually stepped into North Korea when I, I was general counsel that. of the army. Yes, um, I remember. But uh, and, and South Korea is amazing and fantastic. But I would put probably New Guinea and Borneo on the list of places that most people say, you did what? <laughs> but I love that kind of adventure. So those are two of my favorite trips, but I wouldn't want to live there. <laughs> well, here's to lots of future adventures for all of us. Hey, Barb, before we get started, um, I know that you're under the weather and thank you for sticking it out with us today. Um, I hope that as soon as we're done, you can get some extra sleep. Oh, thanks, Joyce. Yeah, just fighting a bad cold. But uh, I, I'll be on the mend and fine in no time. Talking with the two of you will be a, a balm for the soul, I'm sure. Mm. <laughs> well, the indictment watch continues. This reminds me of my first pregnancy when I was two weeks past my due date. Every morning I'd wake up and think, well, maybe this will be the day. And then I'd go to bed that night thinking, nope, no, not today. Well, that seems to be what's happening as we wait for this uh, indictment in Manhattan uh, for the DA's office regarding Donald Trump. I feel like we've been waiting for it now for just weeks and weeks. Um, Joyce, I want to talk about... Um, what's been happening while we've been waiting for this indictment. So last weekend, Donald Trump posted on his Truth Social social media site that he expected to be arrested on Tuesday of last week. And then that didn't happen. Uh, part of the delay was that at Trump's request, a witness named Robert Costello testified before the grand jury on Monday. Why might that delay an indictment in this case? Yeah, so um, I think I'm going to play contrarian here just a little bit and say, you know, we don't really know that there was a delay. I think it's just a Trump-created fiction. And I cautioned earlier um, this week in my newsletter, you know, that there might not be an indictment this week, that we don't know when these things will happen. And why is that? It's because grand jury proceedings are secret. Prosecutors never came out and said there's going to be an indictment this Tuesday. It was Donald Trump. Usually when we in the public hear things about what's going on in a grand jury, it's coming from a witness, maybe occasionally, hopefully not, a grand juror is talking with someone in the media. But usually this is witnesses or even defendants channeling the news in a way that benefits them because they know prosecutors won't talk about what's going on in a grand jury. Trump, for instance, raised a lot of money off of his, I, I can't believe that he calls them truths instead of tweets, <laughs> but he, he raised a little bit of money off of his untruth um, and tested his support, frankly. It was an effort to rally his base again. So look, the bottom line is that Alvin Bragg, the DA in Manhattan, and every other DA and federal prosecutor, they will indict when they are um, good and ready to do it. We will find out when they uh, publicly present those indictments. But I really doubt that these proceedings were delayed because a witness showed up and called Michael Cohen a liar, right? <laughs> Prosecutors knew that that one was coming all along. And, and if there is a delay, if, 
if there is some slowdown, my suspicion um, is, and, and this is just speculation, so take it, you know, for what it's worth, but I wonder if there's not the possibility that they're negotiating with witnesses for cooperation at the last minute. For instance, Weisselberg, Trump's CFO, has been sitting in Rikers Island. Um, there's nothing like sitting in prison to motivate a witness to cooperate, especially if he's facing additional charges. Um, and there are some other folks involved, people who were involved in the catch and kill scheme. So it's possible that the DA, is, as it gets down to the deadline, is picking up new cooperating witnesses. Yeah, it's, you, you raise such a good point because it's so unusual that the public is even aware that there's a grand jury investigation going on, right? Usually the whole thing is done in secret and just suddenly one day there's an indictment. Um, Jill, I want to ask you, I mean, along the same lines, you know, Wednesday, the grand jury got canceled. A lot of people were sort of camping out, watching the, the courthouse to see what would happen. And it turns out the grand jury didn't sit at all on Wednesday, which caused people to speculate what might be going on there. What do you think might have caused the grand jury to be canceled on Wednesday? So again, it would be pure speculation. And I agree with everything that Joyce said, especially that we don't even know that this is a delayed indictment, that it wasn't ever said by anybody other than Donald Trump that it, there was going to be something on Tuesday. We do know that the grand jury meets Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. And we know that on Thursday they sat again, but they were on a different matter. It wasn't about the Trump case. So we don't know. I don't think it has any significance that it didn't happen. There is also a lot of talk about the logistics of having the defendant who said he was going to be arrested, who I guarantee you will not be arrested as anybody in the listening audience would interpret arrest. He will self-surrender. That's a very different uh, thing than having him handcuffed and marched in or having his door broken down to arrest him. Um, that they are negotiating the logistics of how he would self-surrender, where and when. And um, I, I'm my concern right now is something we'll talk about later in the show, which is he has his first campaign rally scheduled for this Saturday. And so that means that whatever's going to happen isn't going to happen until after that. But that doesn't mean there won't be something happening after it. Well, you know, there's been some reporting speculating that maybe Alvin Bragg's getting cold feet. You know, there have been these threats. Trump had this, you know, weird thing on Truth Social where there was a picture of him holding a baseball bat right next to a picture of Alvin Bragg, you know, to, to suggest, you know, an attack, I suppose. You know, it didn't use those words. It just uh, had words that were denigrating to Alvin Bragg. Uh, and then Friday, there's this report of white powder received by Alvin Bragg as a, as a death threat. Um, do you think any of those things will intimidate Alvin Bragg or will have any effect and cause him to stand down? Nope, absolutely not. Yeah. You know, Alvin Bragg is a career guy. He was in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York. He worked with Barb's and my colleague, Preet Bharara. Then he went to the New York Attorney General's Office. Now he's the elected district attorney in Manhattan. I think he will do what most prosecutors do with this sort of stuff. He will just sort of shake it off and keep going, and he will do the right thing. It won't influence him to indict if the evidence isn't there. It won't influence him to stand down if the evidence is not there. Bragg is going to just go straight up the middle and indict the case if it should be indicted when he's good and ready to do it. And I agree completely with that. There is no way that 
any professional with his experience is going to be intimidated by the language. I do think that that photograph, that truth thing that he posted, will possibly play into the penalties that he may suffer when he does self-surrender. While it's unusual to restrict speech, that kind of speech, which could lead to violence, might be something that would be part of his release arrangement is to restrict him from Uh posting things like that. Yeah, yeah, like sort of a gag order of sorts, right? Roger Stone had something like that. He wasn't able to- Exactly. After he posted that picture of the judge, Amy Berman Jackson, with uh, like the crosshairs of a rifle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, the problem is New York is a really different environment for prosecutors. It's much more protective of defendants And so I was interested, um, I I was looking at the conditions under which a judge could detain someone after they were indicted. In the federal system and in most states, it's if you're a danger to the community and if you're a flight risk. And in New York, it's only for flight risk. They don't look at danger to the community. So a very different environment. And I think that means it's less likely that the judge would impose any kind of a gag order. Yeah, I don't know if detention is the same as a gag order, though. It, and it it's might not different, be, I agree. It's just yeah. the whole climate is very different. Yeah, but you can impose a partial gag order, right? I don't think anybody uh, can or probably even should completely muzzle Donald Trump when he's running for president. But in terms of talking about this case or talking about it on social media or posting threats about the prosecutor, I think uh, if I were in the prosecutor's office, I might be asking for that kind of a limited gag order. You know, it's a tough call, right? Because you run the risk of creating an order on appeal if you do it, and Trump is going to kvetch about it. Maybe it actually plays into the prosecutor's hands, because when Trump starts arguing that the jury was biased against him, prosecutors will be able to say, well, if you just kept your mouth shut, right, you did more damage than anybody else. But I agree with you, Barb. It's tough to try a case when the defendant is trying it on the courthouse steps. Yeah, I just worry about somebody taking the bait and engaging in violence, which I think is absolutely Well, Joyce, let me ask you a little bit about the merits of the charges as we understand them. You know, there's speculation that the charge will be falsifying business records with intent to defraud. That's a misdemeanor, but it can become a felony if the purpose of the falsification is to conceal another crime. We don't know what that is yet, but it, the working theory, I guess, is that Michael Cohen paid $130,000 in hush money to Stormy Daniels. That itself is not a crime. Uh, but then Trump reimbursed Cohen with checks over a period of months, including while he was in the White House. And then that Trump falsified records about the payments to make it appear that he was paying legal fees to Michael Cohen instead of paying hush money to Stormy Daniels. And then to make that falsification a felony, prosecutors may also allege that Trump falsified the payments to conceal another crime. Perhaps this was an unreported campaign contribution. That is that the hush money was paid for the purpose of influencing an election. So it remains to be seen. Um, You know, there's some critics out there that say this is a ticky-tack crime. I think uh, Peggy Noonan wrote in the Wall Street Journal today that this is um, a a tawdry act by tawdry people, and it's below us as a country. Um, How do you respond to that? You know, they say they're only going after Trump because it's Trump, that this is uh, small potatoes, that she says, save the handcuffs for Georgia. How do you respond to that? People love to make excuses for Donald Trump that they wouldn't make for anyone else, right? It just, it's amazing to me how often we hear that. You know, first off, we don't know for certain what Bragg is going to charge. I guess 
there's a universe where he could have charges that no one has even contemplated because we don't know what sort of evidence his grand jury work has revealed. But I think this is the most likely charge. It's what we've all been focused on. And it is hardly ticky-tacky. It is an effort at manipulating an election. That's what this is about. The Access Hollywood tape, already out. Trump has problems. There are lots of people repudiating him. Another story like this could have been devastating to his candidacy. So what does he do? He suppresses it. Now, now look, he could have done that. He could have paid the hush money and let it go at that. It would not have been a crime, at least not a, not a state crime straight up. Whether or not it would have been a federal crime is a different story. Michael Cohen, of course, went to jail for this, went to prison for this, for the federal election campaign finance violation. Trump was not violated in the federal system, and we know that he wasn't prosecuted during his own administration because his attorney general suppressed further investigation. We do not know why he wasn't um, prosecuted once uh, Merrick Garland became the attorney general, but for whatever reason, he was not. The statute of limitations ran on those charges, and that left Alvin Bragg to pick up the investigation. Can I add to that? I, first of all, I think there's another potential escalating factor, which could be that the other crime that would make this a felony is that he did this for the purpose of getting a tax deduction for the money he paid, because legal expenses are deductible. A hush money payment is not. But I also want to say, I think one of the best answers about why this is not a ticky-tack crime came from Lawrence O'Donnell, who said, had he not suppressed this, he might have lost the election. So this is a crime he committed before the election that led to his election, and that if he hadn't done this crime, maybe we would have all been saved from four years of his presidency. And that makes it a really serious crime, as serious as any of the others pending in the federal cases or in Georgia. Yeah, this case may have changed the course of history. Well, Jill, I want to ask you about a different aspect of this case. You probably saw that the chairs of three House committees sent a letter to Alvin Bragg. They're, you know, all Republicans because the Republicans control the House. And they are demanding that he come testify and produce documents about his investigation, saying that this is clearly politically motivated. Uh, Bragg's office sent a, a very strong letter in response What's your reaction to the, you know, the, the committee chair's letter and Bragg's response? Do you think it's fair game for members of Congress to go after a state court prosecutor, even if they genuinely believe he's engaging in overreach? No, and no, I don't believe they honestly believe he's <laughs> engaging in overreach. First of all, they have no jurisdiction at all over a local prosecutor. That's number one. Number two, there is absolutely no evidence that would support that this is a politically motivated case. This is something that has been in the public knowledge since Michael Cohn got convicted for this crime. And there has been amazement that Donald Trump wasn't indicted at any time before this. Uh, he's been out of office for two years and so there could have been a federal case brought to follow on. So it, the, the potential argument that the committees are making is that there might have been some federal money involved in this. First of all, even if there was, they don't have jurisdiction. But second of all, whatever monies the 
local prosecutors get from the federal government are for law enforcement vehicles and tactical equipment. It's not for prosecutors. And so there's just really no basis at all for them to be investigating this. And I thought basically that D.A. Bragg's response was quite controlled. I would have been a lot angrier than he was. Um, I, I think that he was absolutely right that you cannot call in someone to talk about a pending investigation. Even if it was the Department of Justice, you can't ask them about a pending investigation. So they're, they're just, it's totally, the only politics involved is on their side, on the side of the Republican chairman who sent the letter. Yes, I also liked Bragg's letter, Jill. I thought it was strong, but respectful. Uh, it made the points without engaging in name calling or hyperbole. I thought it was excellent. You know, it, it was a great uh, reminder of like, where are the grownups? You know, Alvin Bragg's a grown up. Uh, we all worked in an environment in prosecutors' offices. They were populated by grownups and that's who makes these decisions. It's why they don't fall over when there's a threat or, um, you know, they, they don't engage in these kinds of shenanigans. And it's so disappointing to see people engaging in this gamesmanship at high level positions like being the chairs of house committees. But uh, I think Alvin Bragg has been conducting himself with great professionalism and I'm sure he will continue to do that throughout the course of this case. Former President Trump plays golf while his lawyers and enablers fight for him in multiple courts, arguing executive privilege, legislative privilege, and attorney-client privilege. On Wednesday, he lost a significant privilege argument when the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against him and in favor of special counsel Jack Smith. That court upheld the final decision of Judge Beryl Howell as chief judge in which she referred to the investigation as a criminal scheme, and on that basis pierced the attorney-client privilege and ordered Evan Corcoran, one of Trump's lawyers, to testify before the special counsel's grand jury and to produce documents, notes, invoices, and transcripts or audio recordings related to the classified documents case. So Joyce, this falls within the crime-fraud exception of privilege. What's the standard for piercing attorney-client privilege that was the basis for this ruling? And is this like the case of Eastman, where the judge said it was more probable than not that the two, that is Eastman and Trump, were engaged in a criminal act? Right. So here the, the judge is being asked to order an attorney to testify. It's similar to Eastman, where the judge was asked to order him to turn over his emails. And similarly, in that case, Um, And in this one, the privilege was found not to apply. That's because essentially you cannot go to your lawyer and ask your lawyer to either help you commit a crime or to give you advice that you're going to use to commit a crime. There, There is some difference in that regard between this situation and in Eastman with With Eastman, the insinuation was always that he was part and party of the criminal conduct involved in pushing the big lie. Here, there's some suggestion, I think, that Trump may have actually lied to Corcoran, that he does not have criminal exposure, and that instead what they're doing here is they're just trying to get Corcoran's witness, or rather his testimony as a fact witness, 
who uh, was lied to. Corcoran's a former federal prosecutor. He knows the stakes. The report is that he was in there for hours this morning. Seems very likely that he told the truth. He knows what he risks if he doesn't. So, yeah, we're going to talk a little more about whether he was involved, whether he was a witting or unwitting accomplice. But, Barb, let's start with reporting indicates that there were six areas that Corcoran will have to testify about. What are they and why are they important to the classified documents case against Trump? Yeah, Jill, the judge was very specific about these six areas. I imagine these were areas that Jack Smith and his team specifically requested and where they believe there was this indication of uh, use of the crime fraud exception. But one is Trump's response to that subpoena from the Justice Department back in May, where they asked for all the remaining classified documents. And the response was, you know, here here you go, this tiny envelope, this is, this is it, this is all of it. And so they want to know about that. There was, you know, a signed certification saying this was it. Uh, Corcoran says that he drafted the document for the signature of another attorney, Christina Bob, and that got submitted. So wants to know um, all about that. Secondly, um, whether Trump was aware of that response, that they had conducted a diligent search, and this is what they had come up with. Uh, they want to ask Corcoran to give a step-by-step detail of all the steps he did take to ensure there were no more classified documents in Mar-a-Lago. You know, did you really do it? Tell us what you did. Um, they want to know why he believed that all the documents were located in that one storage room. Um, He told prosecutors that's where everything was. Of course, it turns out they weren't. They found some documents in Donald Trump's office. Is it because Trump told them so or was there some other reason? Um, They want to know whether uh, uh, Bob was chosen as the designated custodian, Christina Bob. Uh, was, you know, this is an effort to make her the the fall person. Uh, And so what communications did Donald Trump have with Christina Bob and why was she selected as the person to sign this thing? You know, it seems a little strange that he would draft it and he would sign it. And then finally, and I think the one that might be the most interesting is a phone call that Corcoran had with Donald Trump on June 24th. They have records to indicate that they spoke by phone that day. And that is the same day that Trump received a second grand jury subpoena. This one seeking the security footage uh, that would later show that documents were being moved back and forth. And so what did they discuss that day? Uh, I think that is very interesting. So those are the six topics, and I think they could be very enlightening. They definitely can be. Um, And before we get to how enlightening they might be, um, Joyce, you're our appellate lawyer, so I want to ask you, because it's reported that Trump may not appeal, and I want your opinion on whether he should And if so, what appellate avenues he has, because people are saying he only can go to the Supreme Court, but couldn't he go for en banc? And also, we now know that the court has already denied a stay on his testimony, and he has, in fact, Corcoran has already testified. So does it matter whether he appeals? Right. This is all moot now. Corcoran is testifying. He is mid-testimony as we're taping this podcast on Friday afternoon. Trump could have appealed. He could, as you point out, Jill, have asked the circuit, the D.C. circuit, to rehear the panel's ruling on Bonk. That would have meant that every active judge in the circuit would have participated. Or he could have gone to the Supreme Court. But what he needed was a stay. It wasn't enough just to file an appeal. He would have needed a court to countermand Judge Howell's order and say, Corcoran doesn't have to testify while we're hearing this one out. 
And for whatever reason, contrary to Trump's usual practice, he chose not to play the delay game and not not stay proceedings. People are reading a lot of different things into that, whether he might have um, just thought he would have lost and a loss would have been devastating or whether this would have put some of the information that Judge Howell and, and the appellate court saw in front of the Supreme Court and he didn't want them to know what that damaging information was. It's very unusual to see Trump do this, but he's now out of time. So um, Joyce had mentioned, Barb, that um, it looked like Eastman was part and parcel of the crime and that maybe Corcoran wasn't. But there are some you know, reasons to think that maybe he was because he drafted the affidavit but had Christina Bob sign it instead of his doing it. And so I'm wondering, could he claim the Fifth Amendment now that he can't use attorney-client privilege to avoid testifying? And if he did, would that support the theory that he might have been working with Trump to conceal the documents? Yeah, that's a super interesting question, Jill, because just because he doesn't have the attorney-client privilege doesn't mean he doesn't have some other privilege. And uh, a privilege all witnesses have is their Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. Now, that can only be asserted if a person believes that their answers uh, could be used against them and that they have reasonable grounds to fear criminal prosecution. And so it may be that Corcoran doesn't have any of those fears, or it could be that he was involved in criminal activity. Uh, I'm not sure. You know, I think to assert the Fifth Amendment as a lawyer is a very significant thing. I, I guess it is for anybody, but... You know, think about what that might mean to your reputation as a lawyer. If word got out that you were asserting the Fifth Amendment, it meant that you had a well-grounded fear of prosecution. I think there could be reputational reasons why lawyers might be extra cautious in asserting the Fifth Amendment. But if he doesn't assert it, and the reporting was that he did not plan to assert the Fifth Amendment, that he intended to testify, it suggests to me that he's likely to go in there and testify against Donald Trump. There's even been some suggestion that Trump was trying to use Corcoran as the fall guy uh, in some way. And so it may be that Trump, that uh, Corcoran even feels motivated to testify against Donald Trump. But I imagine a lawyer will play it by the book. He certainly does not want to get himself into any trouble with perjury. And, uh, you know, the time for loyalty to Donald Trump uh, it probably ends when you are being sworn in under oath and reminded about the penalties for perjury. Yeah, um, although I, I, at the end of this, I want to talk about Tim Parlator, who um, may counter your view that <laughs> he'll go in and testify against the president. But um, uh, this, this whole thing has been so odd, and it had a particularly abbreviated schedule where lawyers had six hours about to file their briefs um, one had a deadline of midnight and the other had 6 a.m. deadline, and then the court ruled within hours. Uh, so, Joyce, how unusual are those kind of expedited procedures? Really unusual. I mean, just literally unheard of. The only time I can think of where briefing schedules even approached this was the Florida election challenge, Bush versus yeah. Gore, where there was a national interest in getting it done fast. Um, you know, this was essentially asking the DOJ lawyers on the special counsel's team to get a brief at midnight and file a response at six in the morning. That suggests that something super urgent is going on behind the scenes. And um, I just, I can't wait to find out what it is. Right. And so that leads to the question, Barb, of whether you think 
Corcoran's testimony and documents, notes, and or audio recordings could be the final and best evidence of obstruction of the classified documents investigation by the former president? And do you think the reference to transcripts and audio recordings means there are tapes of Corcoran and Trump engaged in a criminal conversation? Or is it just Corcoran's, there was some reference to it could be audio notes that he took his notes instead of in writing, he actually recorded them. Um, Yeah. You know, it's hard to know exactly what's there without seeing them. But it sounds pretty good. Like if I were a prosecutor, I would most certainly want to see these things, right? Because we know that uh, the judge found that the crime fraud exception applies and that he has notes and audio recordings. Boy, I'd sure like to see that. And it does seem like Corcoran, it really is at the heart of this obstruction charge. And, you know, I, I've been thinking, this is not a, 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 an original thought. I've certainly heard others say it. Maybe even you folks have said this. But charging Trump with retaining the classified doc- documents has gotten complicated in light of Joe Biden's retention of documents and Mike Pence's retention of documents. Now, the difference, of course, is they gave them back and Trump has continued to cling to his. But if you want to uh, make a clean charge, you could just charge the obstruction of justice, which, of course, neither Biden nor Pence has done or been alleged to have done. Uh, and so that makes all of this really important uh, because it's about lying to the Justice Department about continuing to have these documents. And so if there are phone calls between them, especially, you know, this one on the day, the phone call that occurs on the day they're moving the box or they get the uh, subpoena for the videotape about moving the boxes, it seems like this is it, doesn't it? That this is like the key evidence that they would need to be able to prove obstruction of justice. Now, of course, it depends on what the answer to the questions are, but uh, in light of the judge's finding by preponderance of the evidence that the crime fraud exception is met, it sure seems like there's some smoke here. It, it does to me, for sure. And I, I also will note that in checking out prosecutions for the classified document retention, they only get prosecuted when there is something more. Either those documents got sold to a foreign power or there was an obstruction. Yep. So the obstruction is a really important part of, of this case. But this morning, there was new reporting that uh, another lawyer, Tim Parlator, another Trump lawyer, testified last December, but we didn't know about it until it was released today. And so, Joyce, what's this one about? You know, it's really intriguing. Obviously, we don't know it's grand jury testimony, but he's given us a few hints and Again, this is about what Donald Trump did with the classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. I'm really bullish on this case. I've been bullish as soon as we learned that they had lied about turning everything over. And something interesting is going on with Parlator's testimony. He testifies in December. It's before Corcoran is ordered to testify. Um, Before, um, you know, this lawyer in Atlanta who's also been ordered to testify. Parlator better hope that his testimony sinks with the truth that's now being told by these other lawyers. It's a really intriguing situation. Um, You know, it's also, it may be interesting to our listeners to know a little bit about who he is. In 2014, he represented Bernie Carrick, the disgraced, convicted New York police commissioner, in a defamation lawsuit against Joe Tacopina, who surfaced last week on the Ari Melber show as one of the lawyers representing Trump, which is to say that there's a lot of history here. Um, it gives you a sense of of where he's coming from, I think. Yeah, and Barb, did he testify voluntarily? Um, and 
or was he subpoenaed? And did he uh, afterwards make any criticism of the special counsel and the grand jury? Yeah, he, um, you know, he's he's sort of like Robert Costello, who not only testified, but then gave like a little press conference to the gaggle on the courthouse steps afterwards. So it it all seems as much performance art uh, as anything else. But yeah, after he testified, uh, he gave a statement uh, where he said that uh, I quite happily, voluntarily came to testify here uh, just to make sure everybody knew uh, President Trump's side of the story, that there's no problems here, nothing to see here, folks. Uh, But then he also sort of gratuitously slammed the prosecutors by saying that he thought they asked him many inappropriate questions, uh, questions that were uh, disrespectful to the attorney-client privilege, and in his opinion, uh, was amounted to prosecutorial misconduct. So we'll see. But uh, he, uh, you know, took took the opportunity to to fire some shots at the special counsel. So all I can think of is during Watergate. Many of the defendants were lawyers, and it led to changes in the legal ethics for lawyers. And it now looks like we're seeing a lot of testimony by lawyers, and some of them may be complicit, some of them may be unwitting aides. Uh, but it is a really interesting subject, and I look forward to the outcome of the case and the investigation, whether there's an indictment and what it's for. Well, you know what our friend Andrew Weisman says MAGA stands for? Making attorneys get attorneys. (laughs) (laughs) So today, Saturday... March 25th, 2023, Donald Trump will hold a rally in Waco, Texas. You might wonder why Trump is coming to Waco for what's being billed as the first rally of his 2024 presidential campaign. After all, the Texas primary isn't until March 3rd of 2024, almost a year away. And last time I checked, voters don't usually have memories that are that long. Um, We don't know for certain what Trump's attraction to Waco is, but we have some informed consideration on that issue. Recently in a chapel in Waco, one that used to be the home to a religious cult called the Branch Davidians, the pastor gave an interview where he said, and I'm going to quote, Donald Trump is the anointed of God. He is the battering ram that God is using to bring down the deep state of Babylon. Waco was also in the news exactly 30 years ago. And it's that history that may have informed Trump's decision to come to Waco today. So, Barb, can you give us some idea of who the Branch Davidian cult, uh, who they were, and what happened in Waco? Yeah, you know, I'm sure some people remember this. Uh, I remember this most vividly because Janet Reno was the attorney general at the time, and she got a lot of uh, heat about this case afterwards. But the Branch Davidians were this cult led by David Koresh. They were in a compound near Waco, Texas. And um, a, a standoff began that ultimately led to the death of 76 members of this cult, including 25 children and four ATF agents were killed. So uh, ATF had uh, a search warrant for uh, evidence of uh, the possession stockpiling of illegally modified guns and explosive devices. And when they came to execute the search warrant, there was a standoff, a gunfight 
between members of this Branch Davidian group and the ATF agents. Uh, and there was a standoff that lasted for 51 days where they were trying to decide what to do and trying to you know, negotiate with Koresh to get some of these innocent people out. Ultimately, and this is where Attorney General Janet Reno was the one who said she took responsibility. Uh, she initiated uh, a plan for ATF to use tear gas to try to flush them out. Uh, and the building uh, started a fire. Um, and that's where 76 members of this of this cult died. And so as a result of this incident, Waco has become kind of this rallying point for uh, the militia movement, for the anti-government movement, uh, all kinds of conspiracy theories. Um, and this is sort of ground zero for uh, that anti-government far-right extreme movement. Yeah, it, it really has. I mean, it's interesting how sometimes you see these incidents and after the fact, people are wondering how they got dragged into the cult. But not here, right? Here, the cult continues to have resonance even today. And along with another incident, Ruby Ridge, really forms the focus for the modern militia movement. There's even um, a link to the Oklahoma City bombing. Jill, can you talk about that? Yes. Um, although before I do, I just want to add one thing to what Barbara said, which is it's never really been determined what caused the fire. There is evidence that there was some accelerant use, that some of the Branch Davidians had uh, lighter fluid on their clothing. And so it may or may not have been the tear gas canisters that started the fire, but there was a fire that destroyed and killed many people. So I'm gonna get really nerdy here. In, in my old office, when I was a line prosecutor, they called me the arson chick because I did our arson cases. And in this case, there were a panel of fire investigators who did a cause and origin investigation. And one of the facts that they found out is really compelling. The fire in the Branch Davidian compound started in three separate places. It's possible, and the FBI, by the way, did not have completely clean hands here. It took them some period of time to acknowledge that they had fired a couple of canisters that could have caught fire. It wasn't deemed likely that they could have, but it was possible. But unless something really weird happened where those went to three totally different places and caught on fire in all three, it looks like what happened is the fire was set internally. There was accelerant on some of the clothing, as Jill mentions, that was warned by Branch Davidians who survived the incident. And so the panel of arson investigators concluded that it was the Davidians themselves. But I think why what you're saying is so important, Jill, is that in the popular mythology, there's always been this question mark. And a lot of the controversy here is because there's been an ongoing myth that the federal government attacked these people. Exactly. And I, in fact, this is, although I remember it, I was quite an adult at the time, um, reading about it now was totally fascinating. And I think our show notes should include some of the links to the history here because it reads like a mystery story and it's quite fascinating. But going back to your question, there is a link between Ruby Ridge and Waco and Oklahoma City because McVeigh, who was one of the, the leaders of the bombing at Oklahoma City, was doing it supposedly in retaliation for the deaths at Waco. He was in Waco. Uh, he was selling bumper stickers that were uh, pro-gun, anti-government. And um, the belief was that Waco was 
one of the steps of the horrible government in trying to take away guns. And that is what one of the motivations for the bombing in Oklahoma City were of a federal building where hundreds of people were killed, including children in the daycare center there. Right. So Oklahoma City happens um, about two years after Waco. You know, it was the, actually on the anniversary of yeah, Waco. Yeah, the Waco standoff goes on for 51 days. So there's always this controversy about what the actual anniversary is for Waco, but it's it's really that entire time period. And there is that linkage. And so that's the history. And Barb, you, you mentioned that Waco has come to signify more among white supremacists and, and anti-government groups. How does that play out for us today? Yeah, well, you know, the, the, when, when you think about Donald Trump sending signals to people like the Proud Boys, stand back and stand by, and he has loyalty from the Oath Keepers who uh, were convicted of seditious conspiracy on January 6th, I think this is a real signal that he is one of them when he holds a rally in Waco on the 30th anniversary of that 51-day standoff. So the period you talked about, Joyce, was February 28th through April 19th, 1993. So here we are in March. So this is the 30th anniversary of the standoff. 30 years ago, uh, on the day he will hold this rally, there was a standoff going on in Waco. And so, uh, you know, there are experts who say that Waco is the biggest symbol for far-right extremism. You couldn't pick a better place that have, you know, deep veins of anti-government hatred. Uh, This is, uh, you know, ground zero for all of that. So, uh, choosing this as the location is is really just, um, you know, playing with fire. It's really alarming that Trump has chosen to tap into this. I mean, he knows that his words can set his followers off. We know that on January 6th, he he did this. He refused to, to walk it back. He refused to quell the violence when he, you know, people around him believed he was the only one who could do it. And it really looks to me like he's doing again. I'm very concerned about what will happen when he takes the stage in Waco, you know, Jill, you have this perspective, this this um, long historical perspective here. Do you have concerns? Oh, I'm very concerned. As soon as I saw that, I have been tweeting that I am concerned more about that rally than any possible protest of his arrest. I think that it is not, and I've posted this many times. There's no coincidence that he picked sometime during the 30th anniversary of Waco to hold his very first campaign rally in Waco. It's not a coincidence. It is a danger. As we've looked at and seen the preparations being made in New York for a possible indictment of Donald Trump, I can only hope that Texas is prepared for what might happen this Saturday, this today. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm less worried about what happens in Waco. And and we started out the, the episode talking about, you know, your love of traveling to places most people wouldn't go. Waco is on that list, right? I used to go there in high school for high school debate tournaments. Nobody goes to Waco voluntarily. Sorry, apologies to our listeners in wait, Waco. Wait, wait, but, wait, wait. No, but you it's can't just Waco. True. Right. Yeah, you can't just Waco. Waco. Waco's it's a, nice a dry city, right? Isn't Baylor in Waco? Baylor is, and and, yeah, and that's right. where we used so, to go for debate tournaments. We don't want to diss everybody just, who lives in Waco. I'm sure there are plenty um, of nice people who live in Waco. The people but are there lovely. is significance to Waco. But yeah, but and, and the point is well taken, right? Trump is not going there because you know there's something that fun that he wants to do. 
He's going because of the significance. And what worries me is, you know, who, whoever else is out there in, in my district, we dealt with Eric Robert Rudolph, the abortion clinic bomber, who was triggered by all of this same stuff, the Turner Diaries, Ruby Ridge, and Waco. Waco always looms large. And so I really do worry that people in this country are at risk again because of Donald Trump. Well, it's time for us to answer some of our listeners' questions. This week, we had a bumper crop of great questions. We've got time for three of them, and we'll get straight to it. If you've got questions for us, please send them to us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them to us at hashtag sistersinlaw on Twitter. We'll get to as many of them as we can during the week. Um, first up this week, we have a question from Dee Dee. Barb, maybe you can take this one on. Didi wants to know, who decides how long a statute of limitations should be? Seems crazy there's a statute of limitations on the January 6th insurrection, especially when it's taking so long to bring the big guys to justice. Yes, this is a great question. So statutes of limitation in the federal system are decided by Congress. And in states, they get decided by state legislatures. So it's it's a statute, like other statutes. And they decide how long there should be before a prosecution has to be brought. The idea behind a statute of limitations is that at some point, too much time has gone by for a defendant to be able to fairly defend himself. You can imagine if someone accused you of a crime that occurred you know, 30 or 50 years ago, uh, you would say, I can't remember where I was on the night of you know March 25th, uh, 1973. Uh, and so it would be very difficult to defend yourself. Or if you had witnesses, they might be dead. If you had documents, they might be gone or unavailable. There's also this idea that at some point you should be able to uh, feel free that, you know, the time has passed and you can live without fear that you might be charged with a crime. So in most cases in the federal system, five years is the amount of time that Congress will set for a statute of limitations. That's a good bit of time, really, for a prosecutor to pull together a case. Usually, if you want to charge it, that's that's plenty of time to get it done. Um, and there are some wrinkles about extending those. A few crimes actually have longer statutes of limitations. So murder cases often have no statute of limitation. Uh, child abuse uh, often have no statute of limitation. Terrorism crimes have a longer statute of limitation. And so it may be that at some point, there is a bar on January 6th, the January 6th investigation, but not for a while. That occurred uh, in 2021. We're only two years out. So they've got three more years under the statute. I think what's more concerning is, and why the clock is ticking, is I think they want to get this case completed before there's another presidential election or a new president is sworn in in January of 2025. So that's a really interesting answer and something that I think as lawyers we take for granted. Great to get questions that give us the opportunity to explain those sort of issues. And here's a similar one from Maureen. She says, I've heard a grand jury issues a true bill, and she asks whether that's one word or two when the jury indicts a person. Please explain the term and its origin, and if I have that correctly. Can you weigh in on that, Jill? Absolutely. And Maureen, you do have it correctly. A true bill is basically another word, and it is two words, by the way, true bill, uh, is another phrase for indictment. So the jury either votes a true bill 
meaning that a person is indicted because there was enough evidence to make them stand trial, or they vote a no bill. There's another way that you didn't ask about, but I'm going to throw into the mix here, called an information, which is another way that you can bring someone to court for a trial. It's usually only available in the case of a misdemeanor, but sometimes a defendant can waive a right to an indictment. Uh, and an information saves time because you don't have to go to a, a grand jury. So it's the grand jury that issues either a true bill or an indictment, a no bill, or the prosecutor who has an information. And all of them lead to trials. Our final question today comes from Kimberly in Kauai, Hawaii. She says, let's say Donald goes to jail. Will the Secret Service have to accompany him in jail? You know, this is another one of those unprecedented sort of things that we'll have to consider as the cases against Trump move forward. But the basic answer is yes. Um, the first time that we'll see this happen will be if Trump is indicted, uh, he will be booked following his indictment and in advance of his arraignment. And in that booking process, he will be accompanied by an agent from his Secret Service detail who will accompany him in order to protect him. And then if he is convicted at trial or if he's detained pending trial, there will be a team of agents from his detail who will stay with him around the clock. This is, of course, it, you know, it's unprecedented. It's a very difficult thing to contemplate because it will involve inserting armed federal agents into a secure jail or prison facility. That's very complicating for the law enforcement officials involved. But we saw some suggestion that this process was all, already under consideration. There were reports that there were some meetings being held between federal and state and local law enforcement in New York earlier this week that Secret Service was being read in on the plan. Um, and this will just be part of the new complications that we'll see as the result of Trump's criminal conduct. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Jill Weinbanks, and me, Joyce Vance. Kim will be back soon. You can send in your questions by email to sistersinlawatpoliticon.com or tweet them for next week's show using the hashtag Sisters in Law. As y'all know by now, Hashtag Sisters in Law are going on the road. Come and join us as we record the podcast live on stage. We'll discuss the legal topics of the day and answer your questions. We start off in Portland, Oregon on May 12, New York City on May 19, and Washington, D.C. on May 21. There are still some tickets available, but hurry because they're going fast. Go to politicon.com tour to get your tickets today. We are really looking forward to meeting all of you in person. Please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh, Athena Club, Real Paper, Lomi, and Kitsch. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they really help make this show happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag SistersInLaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please give us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. See you next week with a new episode, hashtag SistersInLaw. Did you guys see that I am on George Takai's blog this morning? I am so excited. I answered five questions for him. And, you, you know, like, you guys are Star Trek nuts, right? You know who George Takai is? Mr. Yeah, I know Zell. he is.
No. Oh my I'm God. not a Star Trek yes. nut, but I know who he is. Yeah, he's big great. Star Trek fans. When my father-in-law was alive, we used to watch Star Trek every Sunday night. So being on George Takai's substack is like a dream <laughs> come true for me. <laughs> Good for you. Make it so. 